chapter 4. Going to finish our time in chapter 4 today. Let me just give a, a, a little hint here. You know, one of the things that we try to do is to help us to engage God's Word by just teaching on how to read it when we get a moment. And so I want to just point something out. These are the kinds of things that when we see them, they just help us enjoy reading Scripture and getting things out of it. So we're about to venture into Paul wrapping up a bit of a section here. And when we get to chapter 5, and we're going to have a little pause for us as before we get to chapter 5, we've got some other things we're going to be doing in the next several weeks. But chapter 5 is going to, going to start into Paul addressing a laundry list of issues in Corinth. They, they've got many issues that need to get talked about. So we're going to visit sexual immorality in chapter 5. We're going to visit lawsuits and Christians going to court with each other and suing each other in chapter 6. Marriage problems are in chapter 7 and on and on and on. So there's just a laundry list of stuff that's got to get addressed. But we started this particular issue way back in chapter 1 with Paul saying, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are factions and divisions among you. And so we have been living in that issue and its, its remedy and its explanation for all this time, getting all the way to the end of chapter 4. And let me just grab Ben Witherington's insights on this setting. He says, in this passage we're going to look at today, this concludes the first major argument of the letter, which has been concerned with the character, listen, the character of true wisdom and true leadership and true self-evaluation, which, which if you weren't here last week, please go listen to Evan's message uh, to get some help in that category. Witherington says, God vindicates human powerlessness and humiliates merely human power. This is what Paul's counter-order wisdom of the cross is all about. And it is radical enough that if taken seriously, it will require the Corinthians to give up many of the dominant values and presuppositions of their culture about power and wisdom. The wisdom of the cross. Remember, that's what chapter 2 was just living in, the end of chapter 1. The wisdom of the cross is a message not about strength instead of weakness, but in fact about power through weakness, through self-sacrificial behavior, through reliance on God's power to work through us. Listen, that, that last line there, it can be an uncomfortable dimension of our Christian life to know that, that that's what God was about. To, for you and I to experience power through weakness. All of us like the idea about power, right? I don't like the fact that I have to find myself into something that feels weak. Like I'm not adequate. I can't handle this. This is too big. It's over my head. I don't like that feeling. But yet the Bible says that's how power comes through us and to us through self-sacrificial behavior, that God has a way of us doing life that involves you and I taking a back seat to other interests, laying down our ideas for the sake of something greater than us. That doesn't sound very positive either. 
I've got ideas. I've got things I want in life. I want them to happen a certain way. And, and God's ways are upside down. He says, he says don't, well, don't live your life that way. Turn your ideas upside down and let my ideas predominate. Through reliance on God's power to work through us. Right? So that's what's brought us to this chapter 4 here, this end of this section. But I'm, I'm going to step back into chapter 4, verse 6. And some of this, Evan used an aspect of this, but this particular element, Paul's about to install a principle that's worth its weight in gold. And he's going to say it a little bit quickly, but it it becomes the, the, the hinge upon which his argument to the Corinthians, it's like, guys, you've been having all these problems and, and Chloe's people told me about them. And here's the hinge that he installs. It's going to be a massively helpful principle. It, it needs to be something that every one of us pays careful attention to, and it's tucked away right there in verse 6. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Why? That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, how big is this principle that you may learn not to go beyond what is written? Lord, you by your wisdom have installed divine boundaries in our world, in our lives. And it doesn't serve us It doesn't help us. It doesn't bless us when we live beyond those boundaries. So, Lord, would you open our eyes, not just to the way the Corinthians did this, but, Lord, to the way that we're doing it today, maybe personally, maybe as a church, that we are living beyond what you have revealed to us in your word. This will help us, Lord, like nothing else will. And so... Do give us a heart to hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there are some things that the Corinthians were drawn to that, that began to operate in them in such a way that the revelation from Scripture wasn't enough. All right, I titled this message to infinity and beyond. You and I live in a world, and, and it's different, but it's similar. The Corinthians have a lot to, to, to relate to us about that's similar to us. We live in a world that loves the idea that sky's the limit. Your potential is limitless. You just need to have the right attitude about what you're doing. And and there is no ceiling on you, man. And it's almost as though there's an attitude that's present. You kind of pick it up in like Nike commercials and other places. It's like, don't dare, don't dare tell me what I can't do. Oh, that just... That just awakens in me. I'm going to show you exactly. There's no limiting me. Uh, Do you understand that that in God, we are finite creatures. The nature of what we have been created is finite. We are not limitless. We cannot do everything that we want to do and be everything that we want to be. But you know what? That's not popular. I'm not going to sell many books today with these kind of ideas. Matter of fact, this is probably one of the most unpopular messages I'm ever going to preach. I don't doubt in the future it's not going to get a whole lot of, wow, Keith, a lot of people listen to that message online. Because it's not popular for somebody to tell you there's limits. 
for you and for me. And the Bible actually turns around and says, and don't go beyond them. And that's what is trying to be said here. But they've got some issues here. Let's just read a couple of verses. We're going to go all the way through verse 13 in just a moment. It says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. In other words, that's the kind of stuff that begins to be a problem. When you go beyond what's written, you invite this arrogant puffed-upness that you guys have been experiencing. For... Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, Paul is about to give license to all of us who have any gift of sarcasm. Do you know who you are? (laughs) One of the youth brought me a a little mug thing to stick in my office. I think it says sarcasm is my gift. Uh, and I wasn't even their youth pastor, so they, they somehow picked this up on Sundays. Um, this is biting sarcasm, where Paul goes next. Verse 8. Already, you, he's speaking to the Corinthians, these guys with these inflated ideas about how they've gone beyond what's written. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you become kings. Huh. And would that you did reign so that we might share with you in that. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor. We in disrepute. Right, his comparison here is, you guys are so far ahead of everybody else. Already, and he uses these words, already and without us. And so there was a group of Christians in Corinth, and they were leaders, they were influential people that felt like they had something from God that a lot of other Christians didn't have. Without us, You've gone on into territory that we could only dream of. Somehow, you have tapped into something that you've gotten from God that's so amazing, so beyond the trivial stuff that we're hawking, this little cross thing that I'm teaching in chapter 2. You guys are so advanced. You're so beyond that. And, and you have so much already. Some of us are waiting for that one day, but you've already got it. That's what he's saying right here. Gordon Fee says, Their view, the Corinthians, their view of spirituality reflects an over-realized eschatology, right? Eschatology has to do with the the final chapters of God's plan, the last days. Well, they've they've got an over-realized eschatology. Paul's perspective is one of already, but not yet, held in tension. Theirs is one of already with little room for not yet. Having received the Spirit, they have already arrived. For them, spirituality means to have been transported into a whole new sphere of existence where they are above the earthly and especially fleshly existence of others. So somehow, Paul saw our existence right here in this frame upon the earth as possessing a lot, enormous blessings. We have the Spirit. There are promises. There's richness here. And then there's a dimension beyond this place where even greater things are. That's how Paul saw things. 
That's how the Bible sees things. But these guys had more revelation than Paul. Paul just didn't understand. You could have all of that right now, right here. Paul, if you just had the revelation we have, you could see how all that could be true of you. And you could have whatever you want, man. And you could reign like a king too, right? This is how they saw things. Which brings an interesting point to our lives. Because Paul says the key to this is, is don't go beyond what's written. So question. In your Christianity, in your understandings, in your life, are you out of bounds? Have you gone beyond what is written? And come up with some ideas that now operate in you. It could be expectations for what your life could be, should be like. It could be definitions for things that God has already defined, like male and female, like marriage. Right? We, we can take what God has revealed and decide, no, 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 no. Based on something, we've got revelation beyond that. So we have gone beyond that. We have a new position that is beyond what God has says. Question, I think I put this in your outline, is your church or your denomination or you personally accommodating modern ideas or practices that are simply out of bounds as it relates to what is clear in Scripture? All right, be careful. This is a lot easier to do than you would think because the most spiritual person in this room still lives in this world with antennas poking out to receive every transmission that this fallen world is sending. And you and I don't always read that right. Sometimes we read those transmissions and we go, oh, that's good. Yeah, that's really good. And it's out of bounds. But we just didn't pick that up. Right now, to, to know, and this is a really critical thing about this, right? do not go beyond what is written, requires you to know what is This is a no-brainer, right? I'm a simple guy. So this is a message not only about don't, hey, flag down, ah, you, ah, don't go over there, don't do that, don't believe that. Okay, now you can listen to it that way if you'd like. Or this is a message about how rich is what has been written for us. And to the depth that I know that, I am going to have the courage to live my life the ability to glorify God, all that I need in this age to have joy in a very difficult place, to do hard things. Where am I going to get all that from? From what is written. God didn't write an inadequate amount of insights for our lives to where we really need to go beyond that. But it's just very easy to do. Let me take you into their day a little bit, and then I'm going to fast forward us into our day because there's a huge similarity for us. Witherington says, one thing that may have fostered their attitudes regarding eschatology, right? How's this stuff going to unfold in the end? Was the imperial eschatology, which flourished in Roman colonies, right? The, the emperor and the empire of Rome and how they did things and what that taught people. This flourished in Roman colonies, and which suggested that the emperor was already the dispenser of the blessings of the gods in this life, as was proved 
by his having brought the Pax Romana, that's the peace of Rome to the world, peace throughout most of the empire. This could easily have nurtured the idea that already we reign. You got to get the power of the Roman Empire in this setting. And, and we get it. We get it like few other people on the earth and maybe even in human history. Because the Roman Empire was to the world somewhat similarly what the American Empire is to the world. We export a lot of our influence, our ideas. We, we bottle it up in music, in publishing. We put it on the internet. We invent the internet. We, we just spread ourselves. You know, we send people all over the world. We send our influence all over the world. Well, that's what Rome was like. Rome was conquering the world. And in an interesting way, Rome got credibility in the eyes of people, though, because Rome showed up in your unorganized, messy little tribal fights and bickering and problems, hardness of life, difficult settings. Rome shows up, and eventually Rome settled much of the world. And this thing called Pax Romana, it was about a 200-year period where Rome brought great peace to the world. Now listen, it brought it by force. It showed up and said, hey, you will be going along with our system. But they had a system, and they were well organized, and they introduced all kinds of ideas that just flat worked, right? The, the Republic of Rome, the Senate, right? I mean, we have governmental structures today that we have borrowed from Rome. They were massively intelligent. They, they redesigned entire systems, engineering got a rebirth through them. There are structures around the world today that are built during this Pax Romana that, that still exist today because they built them so well. There are systems that got set in place. You guys, if you've watched any of the uh, stories about Rome in that time, aqueducts, you know, I look at that stuff, I say, well, that's simple. Listen, they invented plumbing. They figured out a way to get water to go from here to here so that people could live in cities. They urbanized what they did. You and I live in a world that's connected. We, we, we can travel. We can speak to one another. You know, we, we call these things information superhighways. You understand there were no highways before Rome? That word didn't exist. Little trails, little hard ways to get from here to there. But the Romans were smart enough to know that if we're going we're gonna to rule this empire, we, we need to be able to travel in it. They invented highways they knitted the world together through this. These guys were trendsetters. If you wanted to learn the way to do stuff, you learned it from the Romans. As did the church and the people in the church. Be, beware, and this is a warning that the Corinthians needed to hear. It's a warning that we need to hear. Beware of pragmatism. You know what pragmatism is? It's just stuff that works. That works. That works right there. That idea works. That way of doing that works. Rome served up all kinds of ways that their stuff worked. Their power, their influence, their mindset. They had credibility in these categories. They could have written bestseller books on management, on leadership, on leadership training, on how to do. And they would have been top sellers in our day. Because you couldn't argue with them. I don't think I wrote this in your outline, but here's a thought. These Corinthians in these times, they applied the promises of God about a coming kingdom and the power and favor of God that is clearly a part of that kingdom, right? God made promises that his kingdom was going to come, and they were believing those promises. 
And they began to believe along with those promises that they would reign and rise above these currently earthly conditions, right? Because that's what Rome did. They reigned. When they showed up, they reigned. And everything became Roman. They weren't subjected to anything. They were the rulers. That they would achieve and hold positions and be recognized as significant players among the culture. Perhaps they would even surpass the Roman rule and oppression. This is the attitude that is in the person who gets saved, who joins the church in Corinth. This is in them before they ever become a Christian. These ideas have been faithfully and powerfully imparted to them. And before we find fault with these guys too badly, you do remember Jesus' disciples had some of these same exact problems in them. Right? They've, they've been with Jesus three years. He has died, buried, and been resurrected. And this is the question that he gets. Jesus is it this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? What do you think those guys are asking? You really think they're asking about a heavenly reality of this kingdom? No, no, no. Just, a, just several months earlier, remember, they had a little fight amongst themselves as to who was the greatest. That was birthed out of two of them asking, Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, could one of us sit on your right and one of you sit on your left? Do you remember this conversation? Do you really think they were thinking heaven? You know, can you just nudge the father over a chair and let us sit on your right and on your left? They're not thinking heaven. They're thinking local earthly rulership. They're thinking Jesus is going to be the king who brings the kingdom here and we're going to overcome all the oppressors. We're going to kick Rome out of this place. We're going to rule. I just want to, you know, maybe a high cabinet seat in your establishment, Jesus. Can you work that out for me? That's what they're thinking. His disciples were thinking that. So into the church comes people who are thinking that too. Listen, we bring a lot of crazy ideas with us into the kingdom of God. And then we begin to depend upon them. And then God forbid some of them start working. They seem to be producing the fruit that we're after. So let's do more of it. Let's deputize this thing. This is the, this is the way to do this thing. All right, listen. Let me, let me fast forward from first century Corinth in the Roman Empire to the American Empire in 20th and 21st century. And let me just pick on two things that everybody, if you've been a Christian for very long, you will quickly identify these two things I'm going to mention. This is, this is Corinth come to town. These two issues are an example of what it felt like to be Corinthian in this way. All right, so when I listen to these leaders that are conflicted with Paul. Remember, Paul's pulling out a version of Christianity that doesn't sound anything like theirs. They're conflicted. Matter of fact, Paul has a hard time ever undoing that con conflict. Right? Paul is going to go on to have a visit to them that they don't appreciate, another letter that we don't have in Scripture that they don't appreciate, and then 2 Corinthians is Paul defending himself against their attack. So these people never did turn the corner from what we can see in Scripture. Paul continued to lead, continued to influence but they had some ideas in them that wouldn't die easily. Now, to be aware, if they're capable of loving Rome and its ways at the expense of listening to the Apostle Paul explain the centrality of the cross and how it is upside down from what you have in Rome, and they had a hard time hearing him say that, you imagine it might be true that today some of us get America underneath our fingernails in such a way that we have a hard time hearing how the centrality of the cross is more important than the American way of doing things. 
But beware, this is in the church, right? Let me just tell you a little story here. I mean, start back in 1993, and your outline there will point out a man named Oz Guinness writes a book. 1993 was the year I came on staff here as a church, at the church. So for 25 years, I've got to watch this thing unfold over the history of churches. And some of you were in the church in 1993, so we've walked through this together. Oz Guinness writes this book in 1993. It's called Dining with the Devil. The megachurch movement flirts with modernity. Right? This is a moment, late 80s, into the 90s, churches are turning mega. Right? That there, there's a change in churches, and the, these massive churches are growing. They're growing in their influence. Their style is beginning to appeal to people. Well, you know, they're, they're getting a lot of people. You've got to manage a lot of people when your church grows. And so there's, there's new techniques and new ideas And plus, we want to attract people into this setting. So there's new ideas and new ways to do that as well. But it it changed the way church felt. It changed the emphasis of churches. And the teaching and the pulpit got to be a little bit adjusted as these ideas began to come in. The backside of Oz's book, the back cover says, Today's megachurch movement should heed this warning. Because of its often uncritical use of, listen, management and marketing tools to induce growth right so churches picked up ideas from rome this is not new is it there's a way to attract customers there's a way to get people and listen we are in the getting people business we're supposed to be gathering people that's not wrong in any way we should we should figure out every way under the sun that we could gather people but but be careful there's ideas that come with baggage that go beyond what is written. Oz Guinness provides a perceptive, thoughtful assessment of this powerful movement and its proneness to compromise with modernity. In the book, Oz raises this question in the beginning. He says, can the megachurch movement attain these goals, these high lofty good goals in many ways? Will it change the landscape of American religion? Will its passion for mission and effective evangelism lead to a harvest of new Christians and reverse the secularization of the West? Will its innovations amount to a reformation in the worldwide church? Can the secrets of successful megachurches be carried over to struggling small churches? These were questions in 1993. But we're 25 years later. What do you think? If you guys will remember, we kind of had a little bit of a primer in the secularization of our culture, which our church is a part of, last year when we did the Enchanted series at the beginning of the year. It is safe to say, and almost no one, I I haven't read anybody who would argue with this statement, the West, and our country in particular, is more secularized today than it has ever been. So whatever ideas were coming into the church, like we were going to reform the secularization, we were going to have an impact, we were going to find our way into the culture and revolutionize it, and we have ideas on how we're going to do that. We're 25 years later, and can I say, it ain't happening. The opposite is happening. The church is more like the world 25 years later than the world is like the church. And secularization has taken hold of every last one of us in this room. If you smell yourself, you smell secular. I'm sorry. I know I do. These ideas of what makes the world work, 
how to manage your money, your time, the level of people and commitments, and you definitely make time to thumb stuff, but you don't make time for this over here. That's secularization. That's the world making an imprint on us that these are the priorities. They're non-negotiable. You must pull this off and welcome to church. This is what we're living in today. So I'm hard-pressed to say, hey, whatever ideas we're going to revolutionize the world, that all the church in the world needs to listen to our ideas, they haven't delivered. That's just a fact. And interesting, a few years later, 2007, there's a moment where there's a little bit of a rethinking of what's called the seeker-sensitive movement. That was an adjustment of the style of churches that was taking place. In 2007, there was a study done by one of the churches who was the leading front runner of how to do this seeker sensitivity, a church in Chicago called Willow Creek. And they studied themselves. I appreciate their humility that they did this, that they, they took a, a study of themselves and said, how are we doing? Are we producing disciples? Well, here was one of the guys at this time, this article came out in 2007, one guy writing in response to the article about this whole movement framed it this way. He says, for this movement, the size of the crowd, rather than the depth of the heart, determines success. If the crowd was large, then surely God was blessing the ministry. Churches were built by demographic studies, professional strategists, marketing research, meeting felt needs and sermons consistent with these techniques. We were told that preaching was out, relevance was in. Doctrine didn't matter nearly as much as innovation. If it wasn't cutting edge and consumer friendly, it was doomed. The mention of sin, salvation, and sanctification were taboo and replaced by Starbucks, strategy, and sensitivity. You guys been saved enough to know what I'm talking about here? You follow this conversation? This, this, these ideas came from somewhere, and they were welcomed by the church. They were cutting edge. They were the way to bring the kingdom. Do you understand? I mean, sometimes we read the Corinthians, and you know, we need to be a little more humble, right? We read the Corinthians, and we go, what is up with those knuckleheads? Good night. Get it right, will you? We're standing in line right behind them doing a lot of the things that they did for the same kinds of reasons. They've welcomed this influence. In 2007, Bill Hybels, who pastored that church and committed that study, is quoted in that as saying, we made a mistake. Some of the stuff that we have put millions of dollars into, thinking it would really help our people grow and develop spiritually, when the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people much. Disciples that were being made were not being transformed. They weren't growing in depth. Their passion and knowledge and understanding of God and his kingdom was just not taking shape in their lives. But they were gathering enormous crowds. These churches are enormous. That becomes the criteria by which you're judged. That's not how the Bible sounds. That sounds like somebody went, way beyond what was written in using that to ascertain things. In 2010, David Platt would write a book titled Radical. I love the subtitle. Taking back your faith from the American dream. It's a great phrase. But here's where I think it comes from. In 2010, you've, you've got 
20 plus years, 25 years or so of, of this technique, this idea that, hey, we're the church and we're trying to reach an audience. How do you reach these people? Well, how does, how does uh, Google reach them? And, and how does this company reach them? And how did these guys get so sharp in what they do? And let's use some of their ideas. And so you are seeking to motivate people with ideas. Well, guess what all those people use? Guess what American marketing uses when it tries to reach people? It tries to offer them the American dream. That's at the core of every device that speeds your life up makes it better. Every way in which this product can make you put a smile on your face. Take you from your life stinks to, oh, you've got it now because you own the right car, you have the right. It was selling the American dream. And so what came into Christians' lives was the idea that that's what the kingdom is about. And I'm going to show you another reason why in just a second. We should have all these things. God is good and he would want these things for us. And so Christians were being attracted to churches, motivated to seek the American dream amongst the kingdom of God. How do you know that that went beyond what was written? In some ways, you should ask for a refund because somebody sold you a version of the kingdom that you're never going to have. It's beyond what was written. I'm not going to chase this, but why did people buy it? Because it's been bought by masses of people who call themselves Christians. Why was it bought? Really simple answer. Because they didn't know what was written. When you don't know what's written, it's very hard to tell when you've gone beyond it. When you're out of bounds. When your ideas don't get along with God's. When your expectations don't get along with God's. And people, people have got very beyond-the-writing ideas operating in their soul. I, I want a life that's got these characteristics to it. Well, you'd be amazed if you, if you found out what you're really pressing hard to have, you might discover you're pressing really hard to have the American dream. And there's churches out there that will teach you how to get that. If you'll just use the ideas they will show you from this word, you can have that too. And it's beyond what's written. It's a problem. Now, Paul's going to respond to this as though that's absurd. Your ideas are ridiculous. And he can't restrain the sarcasm that's about to come out of his mouth as he lays before them, oh, yeah, you already, you already got this, you got that, you got all you want. I love that. That's, that flies today. A Christianity that gives you whatever you want. And then we moan at God when he doesn't give it to us or he doesn't show up fast enough with it. As though that's acceptable. And we all get that. Yeah, yeah. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Well, who doesn't want to be rich? You know, there's lots of churches out there that can teach you how to get rich. Come on. Without us, you became kings. And then he explains who he is. This is Paul's version of Christianity. You might not want it. Right? If you're into underlining things in your Bible, underline all these unattractive words. If Paul's trying to sell the Corinthians on being Christians, he's got a really bad marketing approach. 
I read these and I'm not interested in one of them. I like theirs better. I get what I want, I'm rich, and I get to reign like a king. I like theirs better, I'm sorry. Paul comes along and says, I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. It's funny that he says this right after, you guys reign. The word, the terminologies that he's using is in the, into the arena, you had, you had two different classes of people entering the arena where the games were, right? Yeah, those who were reigning, and they sat in the box seats, and they were, they were somebody. And then you had the lowest of the low that was there, and they weren't sitting in the seats. They were the spectacles being brought in at the end of the show that were going to, for sport and laughter, face gladiators and live animals. When Paul compares himself to them, he says, you guys get to sit in the box seats. We get to be eaten by the animals. That's his version of Christianity. Everybody interested so far? Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we're in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger, thirst, we're poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He can't, those last words are pretty vile. They're what happens, let's see if I can just say it this way calmly. When you're cutting your grass and you, you step in something you didn't want to step in and it gets on your shoes, that's being scraped off. He goes, that's us. <laughs> this is Paul's presentation of Christianity. But it's also the Bible's presentation of Christianity, right? Hebrews chapter 11. And before I read this passage, this is how the writer of Hebrews is going to try to encourage people who are struggling in their faith, who are having a hard time. Now listen, if the way to encourage them is to just tell them to infinity and beyond, buddy, you can have it all. Come on, just hang in there. Just use your faith a certain way. Just learn how to claim that. Press in in God. And you can have everything. You can have it now. You can be rich. You can reign as the king. God made you the head and not the tail, buddy. Some of y'all have heard that, right? How strange these guys in the first century were so ignorant of how to help people. Hebrews chapter 11. This is the help that gets offered. An explanation of a cloud of witnesses who have lived their lives for the glory of God. And he turns around and says, let me just tell you about some of them. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. In this world? No, in another one. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins and of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Did not receive right here. 
what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Oh, but you Corinthians already have all this. Unlike us poor saps who are walking like all the other people of God who are living without it. This is, this is the tone of the New Testament. And I intentionally stopped on this. I, I couldn't pass this up because we are more American than we are biblical. And this just doesn't sound right. This is, you're describing Christianity? I am describing Christianity right now. The life lived in a fallen world has features like this. And if you and I are going to find the encouragement that we need, we don't need the Corinthians version of it. The Apostle Paul shut that down and made it sound ridiculous and absurd. And and you would do well to notice how ridiculous and absurd these ideas are today. All throughout the New Testament, right? 1 Peter, you can turn to 1 Peter. Let me put there on the screen for you. 1 Peter. Peter's writing after Paul, and, and, and he's in the same boat, saying the same stuff. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To Listen, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Stop, don't read the next words. You have an inheritance provided to you by God himself, the richest king of all who possesses everything. He has written you into his will. Are you a wealthy individual? Yes or no? Unbelievably, you can't even explain how wealthy you are. You possess wealth at an unbelievable level. That's true. Let's go back to this verse. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation yet to be revealed. In the last time. In this you rejoice. Wait, 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 wait. This is stuff we could rejoice in? Wait, wait, I'm depressed, Paul. And I'm tempted to just go with the Corinthians on this one. And Paul lays this out and says, no, no, no. In this we rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you and I are wealthy beyond measure and grieved by various trials all at the same time. That is our existence. Do not go beyond what is written. You have an explanation for why is this so hard. Why is life sometimes just feeling so difficult? Well, this is why. And First Peter's all over this. He's going to talk to them like, like chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Sojourners, exile, you're, you're, you're just passing through this chapter. Don't put your roots down here. Don't start spinning your inheritance here. You're not staying here. You're exiles. You're in a foreign land. 
And, and here's the thing. For us today as Christians, this is shocking for us to hear. Peter said this to the first century. He says, for this, in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, for this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus Christ suffered in this world. And so will you and I. And the Bible doesn't hide that. It's everywhere in Scripture. So this idea that, no, 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 we're not going to suffer. We're going to reign, man. We're going to reign. We're going to have everything we want. No, you're not. Y'all want to leave now? Like, this, this is just a, this is the most negative church I've ever been to. You wouldn't have said that 40 years ago because you hadn't heard all the other goofy stuff all these years. But now this, that's normal stuff. You can be the head, not the tail. Grab the t- world by its tail. Fling it around. 1 Peter 4. Beloved. This is as true in America as it was in Corinth. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening. But rejoice. There's that rejoicing again. Why? Because we get to be like the Corinthians? No. Insofar that you share in Christ's sufferings. Listen, you and I are going to face a moment where our suffering doesn't make sense to us. It's disappointing. It's overwhelming. It feels out of bounds. This shouldn't be happening. The Bible says, don't be surprised when that happens. You are living in a setting that has unique characteristics to it. It's the same setting that Jesus lived in when he suffered. And you're not in heaven yet. All right, this description doesn't sound like raining from the box seats, does it? I know you'd like to hear a message on that. Wouldn't that a lot more fun? David Jackman says, probably one of the great attractions of the alternative spirituality on offering Corinth was the avoidance of being crucified with Christ. By contrast, they wanted to be rich and to be kings. Well, nor can we stand back in judgment over them because we are all very easily tempted in the same direction. Yes, we are. Whether it was physical suffering or hard toil, these are the twin characteristics of Paul's discipleship. Focused, as it were, on the cross, as we saw in chapter 2. One suspects the Corinthians were not really interested in either of these aspects. They were not going to buy into being reviled, persecuted, and slandered. That's why they resisted, listen, the gospel of the cross and the sort of Christian life that flows from it. There is a sort of Christian life that flows from the gospel of the cross. It's a sort of life. It's got certain characteristics to it. You and I are going to experience it in light of the gospel of the cross. That's a little hard for us today. A little hard for us to get. Here's the second reason why it's a little hard for us to get. Our culture, American culture in particular, has given rise to the health and wealth gospel. It's taken the Pax Romana of American successes and medication and life and all that it can be and all the power that wealth creates for it to have. And it's created a doctrinal view that in this world, in this world, don't worry about that one coming, in this world, you can have health, wealth, 
material possessions. You, you can have all this stuff. And it is linked to the American dream, right? I think I put this in outline. When good, the good life, when good becomes linked to American lifestyle, stop. How many of you think your life is not all that great because you don't have all the toys that American lifestyle seems to be affording everybody else? Life's not going my way because of that. That's how I can feel. Material possessions, success that creates recognizable favor, the power to achieve and succeed. And these criteria become the new standard by which spirituality are defined and recognized. This is what makes you spiritual when you arrive in these categories. There develops a group that has it and a group that does not. A group with superior revelation and a group without. Welcome to Corinth. I'm of this. I'm of that. And we've got this revelation. In our camp, we have revelation that some of the common, poor, struggling, common Christians don't have. Can I give a modern example of that without being super offensive? I, I know this to be true, so if you shop for it, you'll just find examples of it. But there's a, a, the health and wealth gospel has, has sort of a circuit of folks who speak on its behalf. And at some point, you will hear them speak. You know, guys like Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis. At some point, if you listen to those kinds of folks, you will hear them speak in a derogatory way about the rest of Christianity that doesn't have the insights that they have. If you ever hear them interview each other, it comes out glaringly in those moments. But they have received a revelation. And their revelation allows them to tap into the power of faith and then to sell ideas that you can have divine health right here. You don't have to wait to heaven. You can have heaven on earth. Now, I've heard these guys say these things. And you've heard me say the opposite. Can I just break this news to you? You will never have heaven on earth. You will have heaven in heaven. I know that's deep, and it'll take you a moment to catch all that. But the idea here is an over-realized eschatology. It is the idea that what Jesus did would give us full access to what's awaiting us. If you just learn to use the right techniques, use your faith a certain way, stop saying those words, say that I'm this and don't say that I'm that. I mean, this is all throughout Christianity. This stuff is all over the place. Because Rome has made its way into Corinth, and it still happens today in our midst. Listen, there is a reality that the Bible speaks of the right now and the not yet. That's just in Scripture. And there are dimensions that right now the kingdom of God has come in a form. There, there is the first fruits are here now. First fruits. But if you're a farmer, you know what first fruits are, right? First fruits is a small gathering of the rest of the harvest. So it's not the harvest yet. It's just the first fruits, but it tastes just like the harvest. And it's a piece of the harvest. It's the front end, and there's more coming. And it's designed to do exactly that in your life. It's designed to make you go, ooh, that's good stuff. It's not designed to convince you that the full harvest is right now for you to consume it right now today here. God's kingdom has broken into this world. It is not fully established here. 
Do you understand that when you get to heaven, you'll never have to make anything happen? You know how you have to renew your mind today, resist temptation? Do you understand that there's a kingdom coming where you'll never have to do that again? You don't have to say no to the wrong thing and reel in your appetites. You don't have to seek healing. You'll have a glorified body that's never sick. All right, so if you just sort of, you know, am I still alive? Yeah. Um, where am I? Gravity on planet Earth. Okay, those things don't exist that way here. I need to remind myself of that. They needed that. Listen, I wrote this in your outline. We are called, because there is a, a sense that we should go beyond what we used to be in amazing ways. We are called to be part of this, this bringing of the kingdom. We bring light into darkness, listen, but we cannot eliminate darkness. We bring the experience of healing into our broken bodies, but we do not create glorified bodies that will never be sick or broken again. We bring God's favor into our endeavors and our finances, but we don't do that without facing the ongoing frictional forces of a fallen world. And did you, did you read the fine print on this? Did you know the Bible speaks about present-day earth and present-day heaven in a way that, I think I'll put this in your outline this way, by God's plan, we live in a world that we should want to leave and then be at home. How many guys know that stopped getting preached in churches about 40 years ago? I've said this before. There's a reason why you had songs that said, I'll fly away, oh glory. In the sweet by and by, there was this sense that this ain't the greatest place in the universe to be right here, but there is a place that I'd rather be. Well, that's how the Bible actually sounds, right? Here's an encouraging word. This is an encouraging word. This is how the Apostle Paul is going to encourage these high and mighty Corinthians when he writes the next letter to them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. American Christians, groaning is part of the Christian life. Why do you groan? Because things are hard. Things don't cooperate with me. Things break. Things make me have to go back and redo them. Stuff happens that I can't even explain. Things that make me question God happen. But if you've been discipled by American Christianity... You feel like there's something wrong if you groan. There's nothing wrong with you if you groan. That groan reminds you, you are not home yet. But oh, there is a home waiting for you. Set your hope there. In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we will be unclothed but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. See that language right there? This is where, let me, let me just learn my boundaries. 
I have the Spirit as a guarantee. Ephesians speaks of the Spirit being given to us as a, quote, down payment. You guys remember you bought a house? You know what a down payment is? Is it the whole thing? It's a down payment. And the great thing from our end of this deal is if God puts the Holy Spirit as a down payment, how many of you guys know he's coming back to finish the deal? Right? He didn't put down $100,000. He put the Holy Spirit down. <laughs> Himself is guaranteeing this deal. He's going to come back and finish this thing. But we don't have it all. It's the down payment on the deal. So we are always of good courage. We are always of good courage. Why? Because we don't groan? Why? Because we're the head, not the tail? Why? Because we're rich? Why? Because we get what we want? Why? Because we get to reign like kings? Is that why we're of good courage? No, but my tent is groaning. The older I get, the more it seems to groan. But I've got courage coming from somewhere. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. But we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That ain't true, though, is it? American Christianity teaches you to build the ultimate kingdom in your life right here, right now. Why would you ever want to be so heavily invested here and leave it? How many of you guys recognize this stuff is floating in your bloodstream? And, you're, and we're freaking out, and we're bent out of shape, and we're losing our minds because we just can't get our dadgum kingdom to... To be what we wanted it to be, what we dreamed of it being when we were kids and what everybody else seems to be having. This doesn't sound like those who would rather be away from the body and present face-to-face with the Lord in a place that he has created for us that far exceeds any experience we're going to have here. This doesn't sound like that. So listen, before we go chopping down the Corinthians, we got our own issues, right? right? Let me finish with this thought. Eric, you can come back up. And this is seriously concerning for me right here. I wrote this in your outline. This is a huge reason why some Christians are disillusioned about God and indifferent about God's purposes. Because they had some form of a prosperity gospel in their soul that made them feel like God's ways aren't working. Their faith and their relationship with God wasn't producing something good, something positive and rewarding and right now-ish. So I want a refund. You should take that prosperity gospel back and get a refund. I'm not trying to be ugly here, but you never should have believed it in the first place. And the reason that we do is because We don't know what's written. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to bump into the now and not yet in Scripture so that anybody who comes along selling you heaven on earth would immediately make you think that's a snake oil dude. That's the craziest idea. That guy obviously hasn't read all of his Bible. Question. In this, have we gone beyond what is written? How many of you guys think the Corinthians were happier than Paul? 
They had a system. They had an idea. They fought and resisted Paul for years with their ideas. They fought that they were following God's ways and they had God's revelation. How many guys think that they were happier than Paul? They were more motivated for the kingdom than Paul was. How many guys think the Corinthians had a more attractive model than Paul did? Listen, you and I are living today in America with the gospel at our doorsteps because the cross drove it here and the word of the cross drove it here. It it, it entered people's souls in such a way that it turned their lives upside down and they lived for the glory of God at cost of their own lives. If you had flipped it the other way and say, you can have everything, you can have everything, you can have everything, can I tell you the gospel wouldn't have left people's backyards They'd have been consumed, and you and I would be consumed as well with what can I have for me next, and how can I use the power of God to get it? But you and I live here today because the Apostle Paul strung together all these experiences. Weak, not honored, hunger, thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. But this man was passionate and he had courage and he lived for something really, really big that turned the world upside down. That other marketed thing that's much more popular and the person driving down Veterans Highway would much rather hear, I get to, I get to have what I want. I'm in. I get to reign like a king. I'm all for that. What time's your service? And then you come in here And you get what the Apostle Paul was hawking. That's all we got. But I don't apologize for it because it supernaturally imparts courage and joy and ability to live in such a setting. This is, this is not like the booby prize version of the gospel. That other one's not the gospel. But here's what I want to close with. How many of you guys are here this morning and you are unhappy with your life? That's a hard question, isn't it? I can tell you right now, there are probably a lot of us who would prefer not to answer that question. It's, it's a little painful to stare at our life and go, yeah, I'm, I'm not real happy. What, what is it about your life that you're not happy about? Are you disappointed in God? You feel like God's let you down? You feel like you had a plan for life, some expectations for what life would be like at 20, 30, 50, 70, wherever, you, wherever you've traveled. You, you thought life was going to be a certain way and you, and you got something over here that's like, I don't like this version. I wanted that version. I'm with you. I'm a human being. I want all kinds of things. And I get disappointed when I don't have them. But when it comes to my eternal soul, I've got to take my own soul to task and figure out, did, did I build expectations for life beyond what was written? I have ideas that don't belong forming and framing my soul's expectations. 
So I live with this chasing after things constantly. I live with this disappointment. I live with this comparison. I sound like I'm in the first part of 1 Corinthians. I'm of this. I'm of that. Well, mine's better than yours. How are you paying attention to all this stuff? Because I'm just not happy with me. It may be that growing up in America has done a terrible disservice to you. These ideas are everywhere. They are Pax Romana. Americans' ways work. People seem happy. Look at what they've got. Look at their ideas. I read this book. This is the latest book, New York Times bestseller. Okay. Is that stuff beyond what's written? Have you and I framed expectations that are beyond what God told us to expect in this age? Well, can, this morning, can I just invite you? First, let that pierce you a little bit, that, that you and I have gone beyond what's written, perhaps because we're not very convinced of what's written. And if, if we had known God and his word better, then these ideas would have come and would have bumped into us and we'd have said, ah, oh, that's weird, that's strange. I'm not going there. That's not for me. And if we are discouraged this morning, these verses speak of courage and hope and rejoicing with an awareness that the thing that does it for me is to look outside of my present condition to a day that's coming, to a place that God has prepared for me with a glorified body, face to face with Him, enjoying His presence, I'm to transfer my expectations and hope there. Let me just let you bow your heads for a moment. Let's, Let's just be honest with God. Well, there are some here this morning either will have nothing to say to you right now or their words would be honest in saying, God, I'm not happy with the life that you have given me. And Lord, here is a helpful, helpful question. What were you looking for? We have lived in a land where we are looking for everything that we want. We are looking to reign like kings. We are looking for riches. That's what we're looking for. And you have come and offered us life. You have given us your Holy Spirit. You have offered us reconciliation and restoration and personal communion with you that is limited in this life but will give way to an eternity of in your presence, at home, face-to-face with unbounded joy and glorified bodies that forever never experience the limitations of this fallen realm are never tempted, never drift, never have self-pity, never pursue our own interests at the expense of anybody else. God, that day is coming. What a life you have given us here and promised us that's yet to come. Lord, if I'm not happy with that and all that you have
promised and given to us. Lord, help me this morning. Help me. Rescue me from the American dream. Rescue me from some substitute that I have bought the idea that it's better. And I've lived disappointed. Lord, your word. Oh God, how we need your word. How we need revelation from you. Not somebody's book or somebody's current idea. We need revelation from you. So, Lord, for every person right now feels like, I'm just not really happy. Lord, would that be a trigger mechanism for the pursuit of your word so that courage will come and rejoicing will come and encouragement will come as these words describe. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for entering into our thoughts, our expectations, our pursuits, and God rescuing us. Lord, whatever was challenged in our souls today, God, would you build footprints into the future to give us something new, something that is based in what you have said, and rescue us from having gone beyond that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you back here tonight or Tuesday night.